This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning in Proverbs 6, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study today. Father, your word says that it will not go forth void, and that means you have a plan and a purpose for your revelation to us, and it has a role to play in our uh, sanctification, which means basically our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Now, Father, as we study today in your word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us ways in which we need to apply the principles we study, that we might be challenged, that we might be corrected in some areas where we need correction, and that we might gain clear insight into how we need to proceed in our own spiritual life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This section that we're getting into today in Proverbs uh, chapter 6, provides us with some warnings about courses of action that actually lead to self-destruction. One of the great problems that many of us face in life is that we have a lot of self-induced misery. We have problems that come from our own bad decisions, and we suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. And often it's not just for a short time, but maybe we make bad decisions when we're young, when we're teenagers, when we're in our 20s or 30s, and we uh, have to live with those consequences for much of our life. In the Proverbs, the father addresses his son and warns him from certain uh, wrong courses of action, the focus here is more on character than it is on specific decisions. For that which is in, shapes our life and shapes the decisions we make is the character that we have. And, and this is why it's so important for as a model and pattern that we're seeing here as the father teaches his son is that part of the role and responsibility of parents and grandparents is to shape the character of their children and to teach them and to uh, emphasize positive uh, positive values, positive character traits, uh, traits of integrity, responsibility, honesty, uh, spiritual traits uh, that have to do with the Word of God and living out faithfully before the Lord Jesus Christ. So these, this, this is a passage of, of warnings. We've seen that in the first nine chapters we have ten basic lessons 
from the Father to the Son. Starting in chapter 10, there's going to be a shift, and you get individual Proverbs, and some of the individual Proverbs are one verse, some are two or three verses, but those are individual Proverbs. Now, the reason I say this is because even when we come back and look at this passage, I'll point it out when we get there, there are some verses in this passage that are often taken out of context. Remember one of the... uh, most important laws of uh, Bible study is context. Just like in real estate, it's location, location, location. In Bible study, it's context, context, context. And the reason I'm saying that is because the context of uh, Proverbs 1 through 9 is a context of, of these 10 integral lessons that have been joined together. So unlike the rest of Proverbs, which are just basically... Uh, bullets of wisdom, these first nine chapters from to 9.18 really focus us on, in, in, a de, in a developed curricula for the sun. So there's a unified context here. They're not just individual, isolated bullet points like we have later on uh, in the book, book of Proverbs. So there's a context to these that's important to, uh, to understand. Now, this section that we get into in chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, provides uh, this emphasis on character, but it's sandwiched between two lengthy sections warning against uh, sexual immorality. Chapter 5 we covered last time, as well as many p- parts of uh, uh, the last part of chapter 6, but, but that gives us a, a certain context here that it's, it's sort of sandwiched between these two, two sections dealing with the dangers of sexual immorality. And so in the middle of that, the father sort of steps back and he's going to uh, parenthetically insert um, these, uh, these th- two statements that are warnings against uh, certain character flaws, and then sort of an aside uh, in verses 16 through 19 that is, uh, and that's the section I'm talking about that's often taken out of context as if it's a standalone proverb, and it's not. As When we get there, we'll see it's directly related to what has just been said in verses 12 through 15, and that's related to the whole this whole section. So it, it ties uh, ties together. The reason I point that out is I've heard people try to try to say that verses uh, 16 through 19 are sort of an independent definition of sin in and of itself, and it's not. It fits within a particular uh, particular context. I'll say a little bit more about that when I get there. There's some, uh, as I point out in the in the slide. Uh, the uh, eighth lesson focused is on the problems of sexual immorality, the emptiness of free sex versus the importance of developing uh, sexual intimacy within marriage. Then we get into this little insight section of qualities, uh, character qualities that lead to self-destruction and three patterns to avoid. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice uh, as we address this, just in terms of some basic observation, is that first of all, verse 1, like each of the previous lessons, starts off addressing my son. But you ought to notice that there's a difference. In each of the previous eight lessons, we've seen my son, listen to my voice, my son, hear what I have to say, my son, pay attention. 
but we have no exhortation here to listen, pay attention, hear, or any of those things. So that alerts us to the fact that something is a little bit different. Uh, we have this this address or evocative, as it's known in in, in grammar, to the son, and in the first five verses, and then the second section, it's addressed to the sluggard. When we get to the third section that starts in verses, verse 12 and goes to nine, verse 19, it's not addressed to anybody. It's sort of an outflow of what has just uh, just been said. And that's, that entire section, uh, while it doesn't stand alone as sort of an autonomous uh, thing in and of itself, it, it does represent a, uh, a third division. There are basically three divisions here. The address, uh, dealing with, uh, becoming a, um, uh, co, co, um, uh, 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 you know, standing surety or, or, or standing, signing a, a, a loan for someone else. Uh, that's the first five verses. The next uh, five verses, six through or six verses, six through eleven, deal with the problem of being a sluggard. And then the third just addresses uh, separately, without it being addressed to an individual, the problem of being a son of Belial. This is an SOB passage, so you can be aware of that. Uh, son of Belial. Uh, Belial being a technical term throughout the Old Testament for someone who is rebellious towards God and their life is extremely disruptive and they're what we would basically call a rebellious person or a troublemaker. So the um, uh, there's a little bit of a difference because we don't have these commands to hear or listen that uh, that catches our attention. Uh, they, they, secondly, there's an address to the son in the first part, the sluggard in the second, but there's no addressee in the third. And the, but, but nevertheless, the first two lessons are strongly connected to one another. Both of those two lessons address uh, an individual, whereas the third does not address uh, an individual or a category of person. In the first two lessons, uh, verses 1 through 5 are the first lesson, 6 through 11, the second lesson again, uh, there are certain words that are repeated, such as the word go in, in the, uh, verse 3, and then go and humble yourself in verse um, uh, verse 3b in the last part there, and verse 6 we have go to the ant. Uh, sleep is mentioned in verse 4, give no sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids, and then sleep or slumber is again mentioned in, uh, in verses 9 and 10, so that idea of sleep connects those, uh, those two together. Uh, there's also in both cases the use of, of, uh, of animals and certain characteristics of animals as being illustrative of the kind of quality that, that uh, should be in a person's life. And so this connects those two together. The other thing is that the negative qualities in those first two lessons are not necessarily evil per se. You don't have that kind of language, whereas the third section, verses 12 through 19, specifically addresses a worthless person, the son of Belial, who is defined appositionally as a wicked man. And so this this carries, uh, the connection is that if the warning embedded in the first two two sections isn't followed through, then the danger is someone going into complete carnality, living out all of the lust patterns of the sin nature, and basically becoming a, a worthless troublemaker 
uh, in their life. And so this connects these things together. So the first two warnings have to do with, first of all, a warning being uh, someone who is co-signed on somebody else's loan, which involves being responsible for someone else's future debts, being responsible for someone else's future debts. The second warning focuses on the problem of being irresponsible and basically just being lazy or uh, slow to get involved in anything and just sort of sleeping your way through cry, through, through, through life. Often I think that there are a lot of believers who are uh, asleep in Jesus. You know, they just sort of sleepwalk through their spiritual life. I'm not using that as the Bible does as a euphemism for death. They're just asleep in Jesus or asleep in Bible class. But they're sleepwalking through their spiritual life. Um, and that's true. For, that is a character flaw. And then we get down to the third section, and that focuses on the what can be the ultimate result, and that's being a self-absorbed troublemaker whose unrestrained sin nature leads to uh, disruption in the community and not only destroys the life of the individual but destroys those uh, uh, around them. So as we look at this first section in Proverbs 6.1, we see it's addressed to the son, but again, there's no uh, no statement of listen here. Uh, it, it's markedly different, and it just begins stating a certain set of circumstance, a certain situation. It's addressing a problem that many of us have run into at one point or another in our life, and that is, on the one hand, we know we're commanded to be gracious to other people, uh, to help other people, to show love for other people. But there are times when we, we don't know where the boundary is, and we, we don't want to get into a situation where we're being, uh, our, our graciousness is being used or by being helpful to someone, we're actually setting them up, uh, for, for failure as well, or worse, setting ourselves up for failure. So while being gracious to others is important, being generous to others is important, there are limits. And this is a passage that does talk about uh, about those limits and that we can uh, bring about a certain amount of self-induced misery from a misplaced or naive benevolence. In other words, good intentions plus folly results in self-destruction. So just because we have our heart in the right place doesn't mean that the results are necessarily going to be uh, of benefit. And sometimes this is a difficult predicament for us to work our way through because we do want to be helpful with others, but we know there there's there is a bout a border a boundary, and this helps us with that. So it begins with the statement, "My son, if you have become surety for a friend." Now this is not addressing borrowing or loaning money to someone. That's a different issue. This is the issue of basically assuming responsibilities jointly for someone else's debt. Now, this is not like the situation in um, in Philemon where Paul has assumed responsibility for the past debts of the slave Onesimus, and he will, he will pay, pay those off, but this is assuming responsibility for future debts. 
And in the scripture, there is a recognition that uh, we can uh, of loaning under certain conditions, not with uh, excessive interest rate in Israel. The idea of loans and operating on the basis of investments and earned interest, as we know that in, in uh, under the system of uh, capitalism today, is was not perceived as such, or, or was not the the way economics worked in the ancient world, so it's a, it's a little bit of a different scenario. But this scenario is talking about the idea of what we would call co-signing on a loan, becoming responsible for someone else's debts and assuming responsibility for someone else's debts. And this is completely prohibited by the Father. This is prohibited here in Scripture. And we see this because of the two terms that are used here. Uh, first of all, here's the scenario. You've bec- if you become or if you have already done this, if you've become a co-signer on a loan for a friend, that's the fr- phrase in the first strophe, and then the second, if you have shaken hands in pledge, and that's an adequate translation, the idea that you have signed on the dotted line, you have sealed the deal, you have reached an agreement to do this for a stranger. And the word here for stranger is a word we saw last time. It's the word czar. Last, not czar like you have in the leader of the old Russian empire, but czar, Z-A-R. And we saw this in the opening um, section of the previous chapter, in chapter 5, verse 3, we have the uh, statement, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. And the phrase there in the Hebrew is really a strange woman, and it refers to someone who is not one's own, not, not, you're not covenantally bound to someone. In some places, the word czar indicates a foreigner, an enemy, someone hostile, someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart, somebody who's not uh, close to you in terms of being a family member. I would say that as part of this, this is not talking about parents uh, co-signing on a loan for your children. That's, uh, that's a different kind of issue. That's within the family. But here it's talking about uh, a friend, which is someone you know that's uh, close to you, someone you think you can trust. That's prohibited. And on the other extreme, uh, a stranger, someone you don't know, someone who is not closely tied to you in any particular way. And this is a sort of a figure of speech that we have in the Scripture called a merism, where two opposites are stated in order to express a totality. For example, in Genesis 1-1, we're told God created the heavens and the earth. What else is there? Nothing. So by expressing those two opposites, you include everything in between. Uh, we are to meditate on God's word day and night. Uh, what else is there? So by speaking of these two opposites, you include everything. So there is this uh, uh, complete condemnation here and rejection of any wisdom related to co-signing on a loan or becoming responsible for someone else's debt. This is a path uh, to great danger. This is stated in several other Proverbs. Proverbs 11, uh, verse 15 states, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer. Notice how strong that is stated. If you co-sign, take responsibility for someone's debts, you're going to suffer. Generally speaking, this is not going to end well. Uh, in contrast, this is one of those 
contrastive parallels. Uh, one who hates um, being surety is secure. So the one who refuses to co-sign for someone else is going to not put themselves in a position of vulnerability, and you're going to maintain security in your finances if you avoid that. Another verse that uses very similar language to the one that we have here in Proverbs 6 is Proverbs 17, 18. Uh, it talks about a man devoid of understanding. We saw this same idiom last week. It's a, literally a man devoid of heart. It's basically, to put it in the vernacular, a brainless or mindless person, someone who's not very bright. So a man, a brainless man, a man uh, devoid of any understanding, who's not very bright, shakes hands in a pledge. This is a path to uh, financial self-destruction. He shakes hands in a pledge and becomes uh, surety for a friend. So you have this same idea repeated again in um, 1718 of shaking hands in a pledge, which is entering into a contractual uh, relationship. It uses the same word for surety and the same word for friend. And so it again reinforces the idea that Taking responsibility for someone else's debts is not a good thing. Proverbs 20.16 says, Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. Now, you all figured that out right away, didn't you? What in the world does that mean? Well, there's actually three people, at least three people involved in understanding this verse. First of all, there's the, per- the person that's being addressed. The command is to take the garment. So that's addressed to someone, you. That's the audience of the, of the, uh, of the statement of the verse. T- you take the garment of one who is surety. So that's the person who's co-signed. He's become surety. He's co-signed on a loan for a stranger, for, for someone he doesn't know. So, uh, the command is if you, are involved with somebody who is so foolish as to have co-signed with somebody else, then in order to protect yourself, you better take their garment as a pledge. Now, this idea of taking someone's garment as a pledge was the idea that that, there, that in the ancient world, they didn't own a closet full of clothes like many of us do. Uh, most of us can probably reflect back on the homes of our grandparents. I know in my grandparents' home, uh, that the one they had when back in the 50s and 60s was uh, uh, they just had a small armoire that was about this wide, and that held all of my grandmother's clothes and my grandfather's clothes. That I'm not even going to comment on that. We all understand how times have changed. You go into a lot of the older homes, especially if you go to some of the old those old gingerbread homes down in the West U area or down the Montrose area, and you walk into the bedrooms and they have closets that are this wide. One closet in the master bedroom that's this this wide. Even up until the 80s, we had smaller closets. The house that. Um, that I lived in, that I bought, which was built in the late 80s in Connecticut, was an old New England uh, farmhouse. It was fairly modern. It had what seemed to be decent closets in every room, but they really weren't all that spacious. And when we moved into a house here, we moved back to Houston, bought a new house, had a nice walk-in closet in the master bedroom, and I got one of these... Uh, 
closet design people to come out and design it so we would have double rod space. And when they, they finish, we actually have more rod space in our master closet, which frankly isn't that large. Uh, I know some people have closets larger than my office here at the church, but this isn't that large. But by being efficient, we have more rod space in that closet than we had in the whole house in Connecticut. That was two two stores, two two floors plus a basement with four bedrooms and closet. We have more rod space just in our master closet here. So people today have large, uh, large closets. But in the ancient world, people didn't have that much. So your, your, your robe, your main garment, the word that is, that is used here would indicate your, your, your primary wardrobe. And that reflects, would reflect the, one of the largest investments that a lot of people had. And so that would be given as a pledge. Uh, uh, when they entered into a loan, because frankly, if they lost that, they would lose a lot, and they wouldn't have uh, much else to wear. So that was a significant pledge. This is seen in Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27, where the law states, the Torah states, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge. So there is a, 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 a legitimacy to taking as a pledge for a loan. Now, this isn't a co-signing situation. This is taking as a collateral for a loan. If you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. See, you're not going to leave him. You're going to treat him in grace. You're not going to leave him without his uh, without his garment and his possessions. For verse 27 says that's his only covering. It's his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So there's an emphasis on grace there in the midst of a situation of loaning someone money. And uh, under the law, the idea of loaning was was not the kind of thing that we have today where banking and, and business, much of that runs on the wheels of credit and loans. It's a very different kind of economic uh, situation uh, and circumstance, but the situation we're, uh, we 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 have here in Proverbs uh, Proverbs chapter six is co-signing, not loaning somebody money, but taking responsibility uh, for their for their debts. Proverbs twenty two uh, twenty six also addresses this same topic in Proverbs. Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge one of those who is surety for debts. So it's definitely prohibited in terms of any sort of uh, wise course of action in terms of your financial planning. Now, the other issue that comes up in verse 1 is whether or not this is a family member or one outside of the family or the clan. And uh, <clears throat> the idea of using these two terms, friends or stranger, really is t- seems to me to be talking about someone outside of the family. A lot of times parents can help their children establish credit, co-signing with them when they get out of high school, get out of college, buy their first car or whatever it is that they're purchasing, buy their first house, uh, helping them to get on their feet financially. I don't think that's in view here, although as a parent you need to exercise caution even in something like like that because uh, just depending on the character that you have managed to ingrain in your own children. The second verse expresses the problem, and it introduces a certain 
uh, visual imagery here that runs throughout this, this section, and that is the imagery of a trap, of a hunter who's setting a snare, setting a trap, a hunter who is pursuing an animal in order to uh, capture or kill it. And so it has this, this very strong, vivid imagery of being entrapped, that if you co-sign for somebody else, you have been caught in a trap. And it's your life that's at stake. You've been snared by your own words. You've given a promise. You've been taken. And the word there uh, is a word, both of these words, snared and taken, are words that are often used in context related to uh, hunting or setting a trap for an animal in order to capture it. So verse 2 warns us about getting caught in this trap of taking responsibility for someone else's debts. In 6.3, we have the solution. The solution basically is seen at the middle of the second set of commands there. Uh, humble yourself. And it's a, it's a strong, strong word that is used there for, uh, for humbling yourself. It is a word that emphasizes uh, uh, pressure, uh, taking pressure on yourself, um, uh, putting yourself under um, under a, a, a lot of um, uh, strong uh, strong action in order to make yourself do something, so we are to humble ourselves by putting ourselves in a in a very awkward situation in order to try to solve this problem and get out of this situation this trap that we 've put ourselves in so the writer begins by saying, "So do this, my son." And deliver yourself. Now I want you to notice, probably it's the same in your translation as in mine, that in verse, uh, verse three you have the word deliver yourself. And then in verse five it begins again, deliver yourself. It's the same word in the Hebrew and you might want to circle one and circle the second one and tie them together because that frames what is said in verses three, four, and five. This is how we are to deliver yourself. And we need to deliver ourselves because we have come into the hand of our friend. And this imagery here of coming into the uh, hand of a friend is uh, one that is uh, uh, used a lot in terms of uh, hunting. It's also part of that same hunting metaphor. And when it's applied to, for example, um, the imagery used in verse 5 to deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler, uh, this idea of from the hand gets, gets repeated. Uh, and so we have to be delivered. And it refers to the fact that, uh, for example, in the hunting of gazelles in the ancient world, this wasn't done with bow and arrow. It was done by uh, herding them into uh, rock enclosures, rock pens that would be built in a triangular shape. So it's wide at one end, narrow at the other, and they would then uh, chase the gazelles until they ran into these pens, and the gazelles would not leap over the pens, and then they would go in and they would kill them uh, inside of the pen. So it's referring to this whole sense of being trapped, and then being slaughtered uh, in mass. So the imagery here, do this, my son, deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friends, the picture of being captured, and you've come under his control. He now makes uh, the decisions that affect your financial security and your financial health. So the solution is to go 
to to leave, to immediately take action. Don't wait, don't sleep, don't eat. Whatever you do, just get up right now and go address this problem. Humble yourself. Uh, uh, take your uh, take yourself and be willing to uh, be uh, be humbled. Be uh, Reduce, reduce your pride, whatever you need to do, solve the problem, and plead with your friend to release you from this obligation. In fact, this is so important. Verse 4 says, gives no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Don't take time to take a nap. Don't relax. Don't let the night go by. Get up right now and go solve this problem and deliver yourself uh, in the same way that a gazelle would escape the hand of the hunter or a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so in the first section here, we're warned against putting ourselves financially at risk by putting our financial health in the hands of someone else and becoming surety for their, uh, for their debt. Then in verse 9, we come to a different situation. We're warned against uh, being overly helpful and naively uh, beneficial to others financially in the first five verses, and now there's a warning addressed to the problem of being a sluggard, being uh, slow to respond to things, not being energetic in uh, the way in which we work, and uh, being one who would uh, rather be lazy than uh, exercise uh, diligence in their life. And in this example, again, we have an example from creation, and the author goes to the ant. Now, one thing we should note here is that in throughout the scriptures, we will find cases where there is an appeal to something in the creation. This is known as, uh, as natural revelation. But natural revelation is nonverbal. Natural revelation has to do with the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. But that, that's nonverbal. It's not specific. The only way we understand creation specifically and what we, what images, what metaphors, what comparisons, what character traits from the animal world that we should uh, follow is by what the Word of God says. There are many different things about ants that we would not want to emulate. Uh, ants live in a colony ruled by a queen. It is a uh, matriarchal society where the, men, the males exist only to serve the women. Now, that's not a biblical pattern. Uh, for marriage. We don't go to the ant to figure out how to live in marriage. But the ant is a picture of how we should be diligent in planning and preparing and saving for the future. A lot of times Christians put themselves in a simplistic financial conundrum, and they say, well, if I should trust God for my needs each day, then maybe I shouldn't save for the future. But we have clear examples in Scripture of the importance of saving and providing for future times when things may not be so good. We have the example of Joseph when he was serving at uh, Pharaoh's uh, right hand, and he had been given by revelation from God a warning that there would be uh, seven good years and then seven bad years. And so during the seven good years, they, they took in and filled the storehouses with grain so that they would have enough uh, uh, food resources to last through the seven bad years. That's the idea here, uh, the illustration from the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. 
uh, consider her ways and be wise. Notice how complimentary God can be. We live in a world today where people are so influenced by politically correct language that for anybody to use some sort of negative uh, term like this is, is considered to be so terribly wrong. How insulting. Uh, let, let's get all the sluggards together and unite. Uh, let's start our own political action group so that we can have uh, other people who aren't sluggards because obviously that's our culture, so let's not diss our culture. Let's all uh, get somebody else to provide for all of our needs. Oh, yeah, that's called a welfare state or socialism. Um, but we're to pay attention to this work ethic that is uh, uh, illustrated in the ant, working hard now to save up, store up for future hard times. Uh, consider her ways and be wise. They have no captain. They have no overseer or ruler. Uh, but the ant provides uh, her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. When there's time of prosperity, time of plenty, then you save, you store, you take a percentage of your income uh, every paycheck and you put that aside in a savings account or invest it uh, in some way that you can have some uh, slight return on that investment in order to provide for the future when you might not be in a time of prosperity. And then there is a, a strong rebuke given in verse 9. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? And the idea of slumber here isn't a deep sleep. We're not talking the kind of word here that refers to a deep REM sleep like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, but this is talking about somebody who's just kind of always dozing off and not really paying attention and sort of in and out of it and not not quite on top of things. Uh, they're just not, they're not very energetic and they don't want to get too involved and they don't want to work too hard. Uh, they're just uh, kind of easing their way through life. So how long will you slumber, O sluggard? Uh, sluggard is someone who is sluggish in life. There's not a lot of energy there for taking care of their own life, their own responsibilities, and taking care of their own needs. And then he's mocked. Notice how God mocks people. Oh, how terrible. See, if you're politically correct, now you think that God is a sinner, and so you're going to go off on that tangent. But what we see here is that there is divinely sanctioned sarcasm throughout the Scripture. God ridicules those who reject him. God ridicules those who say there is no God. God calls them a fool. And that means that is the divine righteous standard, and we should emulate God. I'm not saying you should be offensive, but we shouldn't uh, have to re react to the uh, totally irrational uh, values that come up from a pagan culture. So the mocking goes like this, a little sleep. That's what the sluggard says, oh, I just need a little more sleep. I just need to rest my eyes a little more. I, I don't need a job that gets me up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, if you can find me a job where I can go to work at 10 in the morning and get off at 2 in the afternoon, that'll be fine. But 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 other than that, I'm not going to put forth too much effort. So a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So I memorized this verse years ago. I love it. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And poverty is represented here uh, like, like a thief. 
the idea of a prowler here is someone who walks about, someone who's going around the neighborhood looking for an opportunity to just to get into your house and to uh, take whatever they can. It's going to rob you and steal from you the, the valuable things that you have, the quality of life that you have, and you don't know when it will come upon you. If you're not diligent and you don't have a good work ethic and you don't work hard, then you don't know what may happen tomorrow or the next day, and suddenly you're impoverished. This isn't just the idea of not having enough. This is the idea of losing the means of supporting life. And then the second illustration is it ratchets it up a little bit. It's not just the prowler, the burglar, but it's an armed burglar, someone who is going to hold you up and not when you... Uh, expect it. So there's a warning against being a sluggard and not being diligent and responsible in your life. And now we come to the last section, verses 12 through 19. This section relates to the son of Belial. It doesn't actually use the term uh, uh, Belial there. Excuse me, I think I, um, I skipped over something here. A couple of other verses in the Proverbs that talk about poverty and and the lack of uh, work and labor, Proverbs thirteen eighteen, poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. So often today we live in such a proud society that nobody wants to take correction from anybody. And so they work for someone and they try to teach them how to work and they quit the jobs. They, I'm, I'm too proud to, to work for someone like that. Uh, but the contrast is the one who regards a rebuke will be honored. They're going to improve their life. They're going to go forward. They're going to learn how to uh, be better at, uh, and engaged in their work and work responsibilities. Uh, Proverbs 14.23, In all labor there is profit. There is nothing, no labor that is dishonorable. All labor is honorable, according to the Scripture. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Proverbs 21.5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. The diligent is the hard worker. But those of everyone who's hasty, surely to poverty. So they're hasty, but they're not going anywhere. They're running around in circles, and they're, that's uh, another form of being uh, lazy. They're not working. Uh, Proverbs 22.16, He who presses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to uh, poverty. And so what I'm pointing out in, in these verses is that there's nothing wrong in Scripture with someone who has a lot. There's nothing wrong in Scripture with somebody who works hard. That doesn't mean physically. You can work hard with your brain. You can invest your money wisely and multiply it. Wealth is not something wrong in Scripture. It's not wrong to be wealthy. People shouldn't be penalized by a tax system or, or economic system that takes away from them. They're the productive ones. They're the ones that provide for others. They provide jobs for others. And so it's, it's wrong to, uh, to depict the rich or the wealthy as those who are just hoarding it for themselves. What do you think they do? Somebody like Bill Gates, you think he just takes all of his money, his billions, and puts it in a, in a, uh, in, 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 in a safe under his bed? No, he has employees that work for him. He invests his money. He gives enormous amounts of money to charitable things. That's because as he has worked and labored and increased his wealth, he can use that to benefit and bless others, and that's what wealthy people do. So we live in a world today where we want to condemn 
uh, the wealthy, but it, it, it's the wealthy who benefit and help uh, the rest of us. Even when they're doing it for their own selfish means, the unintended consequence is that their wealth benefits other people in many different ways. Uh, Proverbs twenty-eight nineteen: He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. And remember, in in uh, first or uh, Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul says, "If you don't work, you don't eat." And that's the principle. That's the biblical principle of love for the poor person. You don't work, you don't eat. The principle in the scripture is not, you don't work, oh, we'll give you a handout. The handout does no good for somebody who won't work. So there is, uh, we have to balance compassion with reality and responsibility. Now, verse 12 gets us into that third issue, which is not addressed to anybody. It is rather an outgrowth of what happens when the individual gives himself to irresponsibility. He becomes a worthless person. This is the word Adam Belial, or Belial as it's usually uh, mispronounced in English. Adam is the word for man or mankind. It's the worthless human being. And it's uh, Belial is a word that is used in, in many cases for a rebellious or insolent uh, troublemaker. This is someone who is, uh, in many cases, uh, someone who rejects any authority uh, that's been set over them. In fact, uh, in Second Corinthians uh, chapter five or chapter six, verse fifteen, it is a term that has come to be applied to Satan. So it is ultimately talking about just the rebellious uh, individual. It denotes somebody who is implacably wicked, someone who agitates against authority, who who agitates against the good. Uh, It's used to describe people who have revolted against God in Deuteronomy 13.4 and 1 Samuel 2.12, Nahum 1.11 and 15. So it refers to those who are uh, rebels. Uh, those who revolt against the king, 1 Samuel 20, verse 27, and 2 Samuel 20, verses 1 and 2, also use this to refer to the rebel against the king or the rebel against the government. Uh, for Proverbs 19.28 uses it to describe someone who rejects justice. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.9 talks about somebody who rebels against the community. Uh, it's interesting, in Judges 19.22, this is a story that parallels the episode in Genesis 17 of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the homosexual uh, perverts in Gibeah. In Judges 19.22 are called sons of Belial. That phrase, son of something, is just a Hebrew idiom describing some uh, a characteristic of a particular group. So if you're a fool, you'd be called the son of a fool. If you're a murderer, you'd be called the son of a murderer. If you are a rebellious, destructive troublemaker, you're called a son of Belial, or a, in this case, a uh, man of Belial, someone who cites uh, or incites others to uh, rebellion. The uh, the next phrase, a wicked man, is very simply uses the term aven in Hebrew, which is a word for evil or wickedness or an evildoer, and it refers to someone who has engaged in activity that brings them under condemnation and judgment. They are in uh, violation of God's standards 
and are violating the will of God. They are abusing power and mistreating others. So we have this picture of this this last person. He is a, a, a rebellious person, a troublemaker, stirring up dissension. He's described in the next couple of, uh, at the end of verse 12 and the next couple of verses by seven characteristics. Uh, similarly, when we come to the last part of Proverbs, um, of this section in verses, uh, nine, uh, verses, uh, 16 to 19, where it says there are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination, uh, to him, we'll see that there's a parallel between the two. What the second part of this emphasizes is why God, the, the characteristics that work themselves out in the life of the rebellious person, and this is what God hates. He hates those characteristics of the rebellious person. So in Proverbs 6, uh, 13, uh, we read, he winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his finger. This, uh, this begins with this winking. It's a uh, it's not in, in in our culture. You can wink, and it's something kind of jovial and fun, or it can also be something uh, malicious. Here is simply that idea of something that is uh, malicious. It refers to an insidious, malicious, antisocial behavior that is a, a proving that which is evil. So he winks with the eyes. He's making uh, light of that which is good, and he is promoting that which is evil. He shuffles. His feet, and the idea there is that uh, shuffling his feet was some sort of a, of a, a action that indicated a, approval of evil activity. And pointing with his fingers, this is somebody who's using these these sinister uh, sinister gestures behind somebody's back in order to minimize them, to show disrespect for them, and to uh, continue to build up an attitude of rejection of their authority. Uh, Proverbs 6.14 moves from the external actions to the internal actions. The external actions give, put a window on the character inside the person. His heart is perverse. Perversity refers to acts that are contrary to biblical and righteous norms and standards. So inside of his heart, his thinking, his values are completely distorted. They are the opposite of biblical righteous values. Uh, perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. The word devise is a word that is also used to, for plowing or engraving something. It, it has that idea of setting something in a, in, in a, in a track. Uh, he's working something out, setting a plan that he's going to carry out in a, in a, in a straight line. He sows discord. The word discord is a Hebrew word, madan, which means to stir up controversy. So he is rebellious. He hates the truth. He is trying to ridicule those who are in authority, and he is trying to cause uh, dissension and controversy uh, among the people. And the result is self-destruction. His calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. Eventually there is judgment. What a man sows, this he will also reap. There is accountability in God's world. Now, verses 12 through 15 represent 
one approach to this wicked man. And then in the next section, it sort of heightens the theme, emphasizing bringing God in for the first time, emphasizing that there's accountability to God. And God hates, he abominates the kind of person that emulates these values. Um, I've had some people try to tell me that, see, look at this verse. God doesn't mention uh, sexual sin here, so it can't be that bad. Wait a minute, look at the context. Chapter 5 has 23 verses condemning uh, adultery and sexual immorality. Uh, then from verse 20 to the end of chapter 6, and then we come back into chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, all of those, you have three chapters that condemn adultery. So uh, it's a specious argument to say, well, you can look here and you, God doesn't mention sexual sin. It's not, the, it, look at the context and it all flows together. The, these six things the Lord hates. These are six things that are present in the life of the troublemaker described in verses 12 through 15. Se, uh, this is one of those Hebraisms where it's focusing on seven things, but it heightens it by emphasizing the list by saying, you know, there's six things that God hates. Yes, even seven. So it's not like he's forgotten said, oh, yeah, I'm going to add one. It's just a way of emphasizing the the, the, the horror of the whole list of seven. Um, but if you look at the, the comparison I, I developed here on this slide, is that there are connections between the description of the worthless person, the troublemaker, verses 12 through 15, and these sins that God abominates in verses 16 through 19. There's a mention of, of lying mouth or lying tongue, verse 12, and then again in verse 17. Something negative is said about the eyes in thir- verse 13, and again in verse 17. Feet are mentioned in verse 13, again in verse 18. Fingers are the hands mentioned in 13, verse 13, again in verse 17. The perverse hearts mentioned in verse 14, and then again in verse 18. And the sowing of discord is mentioned at the end of both descriptions in verse 14 and again in verse 19. And so we can't say that verses 16 through 19 are standalone. This isn't just a sort of a definition of what God considers to be really sinful. It's connected to the character traits of the of the Adam Belial, the man, the worthless man, the troublemaker of verses 12 through 15. And so we see them listed, seven are abomination to him. The proud look, this indicates a mental attitude sin, uh, the arrogance, the haughtiness inside the individual and his, uh, his uh, pomposity. Uh, it's a, it manifests a rejection of God's authority that is parallel to what makes the man of Belial a man of Belial, someone who rejects uh, divine authority, uh, a lying tongue. Now, the word here for lying is different uh, from the word that we have down in verse 19 for the false witness who speaks lies. This was the word uh, tzaker, which indicates someone who is aggressively deceitful in order to harm other people. He is engaged in perfidious actions, and he is seeking to entrap or take advantage of somebody by setting up a web of lies. So uh, a proud look, a lying, deceitful tongue, we might say, hands that shed innocent blood. Uh, This is not killing, this is murder. 
This is someone who is uh, committing murder. The Bible recognizes many different kinds of killing. Some are legitimate when it's in self-defense, when it's in war, when it's an officer of the court uh, having to kill or even execute a a criminal. That's all legitimate. But, But murder is illegitimate, taking of a life of somebody else. Uh, Proverbs 6.18 goes on to say, A heart that devises uh, wicked plans. This is someone who is uh, constantly coming up with new ideas to promote their uh, their rebelliousness. They're calculating all of the time and, and uh, uh, computing ways in which they can uh, overturn the authority of God. The second line, feet that are swift, at running to evil, they are uh, pictures them as as always ready uh, to give in to to sin in order to give in to rebellion. They are they are constantly seeking ways in which they can revolt against God. Uh, verse nineteen, a lying witness. This is a another word for lying. Uh, this is from the uh, Hebrew word uh, kasav, which has to do with uh, just being uh, a, a, like a false witness in court, just telling a lie, uh, someone who is distorting the truth, someone who is a, a perjurer on the witness stand, and then finally one who sows discord. He's constantly stirring up trouble among the brethren. So in these three vignettes here that we have from verses 1 through 5, 6 through 11, and 12 through 19, we see a warning. If you don't walk with the Lord, then you're going to end up getting involved in traps you set for yourself that lead to self-destruction and self-induced misery. There's only one hope for having wisdom in life, and that's to submit to the Word of God and to learn the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and to completely internalize it into our thinking. And that's the only way we can develop wisdom and skill. And as Proverbs 3 uh, 15 and 16 says, If we trust in the Lord and commit our life to Him, then He's the one who straightens out our paths. And many of the bad decisions, many of the difficult circumstances that people find themselves in are often because they haven't been on a path where they've been trusting the Lord, and consequently in discipline, God has allowed them to go off the track, and now they're caught up in a situation where they have to face a lot of negative consequences and uh, less than positive, less than appealing choices. So if we walk with the Lord, he straightens out the path, and the choices we're faced with are not so much between good and bad, but between good and better. So we need to consistently walk with the Lord with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that there is a a wisdom that goes far beyond our own limited, finite knowledge, wisdom that comes only from the revelation that you've given us in your word, and only by studying your word and internalizing that revelation do we are we able to uh, have a life of wisdom and come to uh, time, even though we live in this devil's world, we can experience a great prosperity, great blessing, great happiness, uh, just because we are constantly trusting in you and applying your word. Of course, this starts at the cross. We pray that if there's anyone here today or anyone listening that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, 
that they might take advantage of this opportunity to do so. Perhaps uh, you're not sure what would happen when you die. You're not certain of your eternal destiny. Well, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain, your opportunity to trust in the Lord and to focus upon him and trust in him and him alone by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who came into human history to die on the cross for our sins. Scripture says simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll become a new creature in Christ at that instant. God will give you an an abundance of blessings, bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and we will have a new life in him, and we will become a new creature that needs to be nourished uh, through spiritual truth that comes only from the word of God. So, Father, we pray that you would again challenge us with the things that we've learned today, that we might walk a path of wisdom and experience all the riches and abundance and blessing that you would have for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.